The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name's Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us in this building and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Had about 400, 450 people join us online last week and we're grateful that you are with us. If, if you are sick with the spread of this thing that's going around, please stay home, whatever you got. We don't want to catch it. But also if you're sick and you need help, if you're watching online, let us know. We'd love to help you if you need meals or anything else. Let us know how we can help. Some folks are staying home to avoid the spread, and that's fine as well. And if, if you want a mask, we've got some available out there. Um, but we, we want to protect people as best we can and, and use wisdom as best we can. We're grateful to be meeting in person. As you can see, as we meet in person, uh, uh, we've got this population of children, and we've got this great opportunity to minister to kids, to make disciples, to declare God's word to the next generation, and we've seen some of those needs met. We've still got some needs, great opportunities to serve, as you can see. So reach out to Julie Martin or Heather West in our church office if you'd like more information on what it looks like to serve. And also, just want to remind, uh, remind you that we've got TBC Together coming up on the 20th of, uh, of February that we rescheduled. That'll be that night, 6.30 to 8. And then next week is our men's conference. We've still got some spots open. If you want to show up and register there, you're welcome to do that. That's this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We've got guys that usually go play golf or disc golf before. So if you would like to do that, you can email me and I'll let you know how to get connected with those folks. Well, we are continuing in our series in Ezra as we look at the church rebuilding. We'll start in Ezra and go through Nehemiah this spring. And as we do, we'll be in Ezra chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 13. You know, memories can be really a wonderful thing. And the people of God are going to really dive into remembering their story as this chapter starts and really in the middle of it, but nostalgia can also be a dangerous thing. It can be a double-edged sword. I was talking to my son this Friday night about the importance of remembering the story you're in, and he was asking kind of what I was going to talk about, and I began to share with him, and I asked him, could I share this? As I was talking to him about the importance of remembering your story, he said, you know, Dad, there was this moment um, kind of late in 2020. It was this spot where the pandemic was rising up again, and I was really wrestling. I missed my friends. I hadn't seen them in a while. I wanted to see my friends. I didn't know what this was going to look like, what the world was going to look like. And I was really stressed out about it. He said, and then I remembered this scene in the two towers in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he said, there are Frodo and Sam and they're in a battle and Frodo's afraid. And he says, he says to Sam, I, I don't think I can do this, Sam. And Samwise, he says, I know, I know it's all wrong, and by rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness 
must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. They meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories has lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. They just kept going. Well, what are we holding on to, Sam? Frodo asked. That there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. See, Israel is remembering their story. And remembering the story you're part of is essential for continued faithfulness. But again, nostalgia, if you're not careful, it can lead can leave some thinking there's no hope for the future. Well, both of these things are going to be true for Israel. They begin this chapter kind of in all their feels about their history, if you will, because of the journey they've just taken. See, Israel, as they've come out of exile and returned to Jerusalem, they've basically taken Abraham's journey. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans, not far at all from Babylon. And you can look kind of the routes that these three waves took, basically the same route Abraham took to end up in the promised land. And so these people who have been in exile who thought maybe they'd never go back are back in the promised land. And see, as they see this, they're reminded no matter what the forces of evil do to try to keep them from it, and in spite of their own sin and foolishness, nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to and accomplishing his purposes through his people. That's what Israel's gonna find out in Ezra chapter three. That's what we're gonna find out as well today. Let's just read Ezra chapter three. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as written as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar on its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. When they get back to, to Jerusalem, their priority is worship. Let's set up this altar so we can worship God aright. They set the altar in its place and they kept the Feast of Booths. 15 days after 70 years away, 15 days back in, they don't have houses yet, and they keep the Feast of Booths it is, as it is written. And they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to rule as each day required, and after that, regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to burn burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, food and drink, oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Just so we don't kind of gloss over what happened there, they got a grant to bring cedars from Lebanon. And by God's grace, I was privileged to go see some of the few remaining cedars in Lebanon. It's an amazing thing. They got a grant. Here's what happened. They cut down cedar trees and moved them 90 miles across land of the sea, float them down 40 miles to Joppa, and then bring them to Jerusalem. This massive undertaking so that the temple can be set right. 
how they worship is a real big deal. So they gave money for this and it happened according to this grant. Cyrus gives it freely. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, about, so about six months later, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and, and Yeshua, son of, of Josedek, um, they made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and up to supervise the work of the Lord. And so they begin to do this. They're gonna see the foundation laid. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And it says, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. God, would you move in us like you did in your people? Would you stir our spirits as you did in theirs to make worship a priority for your glory and that we would live joyfully on purpose for you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Israel sees, they understand, they know nothing is gonna stop God from keeping his promises to and accomplishing his purposes through his people. They remember that because they went on Abram's journey. They're gonna get another reminder as we continue to read in the chapter. But what we're gonna do is just kind of walk through the chapter and then talk about four truths for them that might apply to us a little bit and then what I think are four truths for us. So first thing we see is that they are told to rise and build. They're told to rise and build. Now, when we see this in Ezra chapter three, when the seventh month came, the people gathered as one man. Thousands of people in this first wave gather as one man. Then rose Yeshua, the son of Josedach and Zerubbabel, and they built the altar of God. This is the second time of six times in Ezra and Nehemiah, you're gonna hear this phrase, rise and build. The same thing was stated when they began the first temple, rise and build when God calls his people to mission. There's action to be taken by his grace. There are things that people do. And as we read on in the chapter, there are a variety of roles that people have, but he tells them rise up and build. The second thing he says is they rise up and build, they do it as it is written. They set the altar in its place. They begin to burn burnt offerings morning and evening from the first day of the month. Now this is a big month for them, lots of burnt offerings. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. See, worship happens when it happens right according to the word of God. Their their priority is worship and they wanna do it in a way that honors God. 
One of the things that hasn't ceased to surprise me or make me sad as a pastor, I hope it never ceases to surprise me and never ceases to make me sad is people will come into my office and they know the scripture. They understand it as evidenced by the first thing they say, whether they're wanting counsel or wanting to talk. And they'll say, Chase, I know the Bible says this, but, and then they'll state the exact opposite thing. I know the Bible says this, but I've always thought God is fill in the blank, not what the Bible says. I know the Bible says this, but I really feel like God wants me to fill in the blank, not what the Bible says. And it's just so odd. Now, hear me. I I know that some of you are here and you got tremendous questions or doubts about God. And we're glad you're here. We want you here. Keep coming with your questions and keep coming with your doubts. But I would just press a little bit If I could, I read this week, Pastor Scott Sauls from Nashville, Tennessee, he said, most people don't reject parts of the Bible because it contradicts itself. People reject parts of the Bible because it contradicts them. So let me say that again for the people in the back, okay? Most people don't reject parts of the Bible because it contradicts itself. Most people reject parts of the Bible because it contradicts them. It's, it's like my old friend Danny Cunningham says, we're just hemmed in by scripture. We're just hemmed in by scripture if we're the people of God. And I'll tell you, in the church, not in TBC, but in the church in the West, there are two ways that I just see people not wanting to be hemmed in by scripture, not wanting to do things as it is written. And the first is just a rejection of truth, just a rejection of what the Bible says. I know the Bible says this, but I really think this. And the other, maybe just as worse, is not a rejection of truth, but it's the demeanor in which the truth is spoken. See, if you reject the truth, I don't know what spirit's speaking, but it's not the Holy Spirit. But in my house, there's a little boy walking around singing a song from school, and it sings about the fruit of the Spirit. And it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as we speak the truth, if we're not doing that with love, if we're not doing it with gentleness, with patience, with kindness, and with self-control, whatever spirit's on us, as they say in Deweyville, Texas, ain't the Holy Spirit. See, those are two ways that we kind of reject sometimes as it is written. We don't want to reject parts of the Bible. We want to worship God aright. Then the third thing, this most confounding of things, they kept the Feast of Booths. Now the seventh month is a big month for Israel. It starts on the first day with the Feast of the Trumpets. And the second feast of the month is the Day of Atonement as they're preparing to build the altar, they don't have a temple. They can't do the Day of Atonement Arise. They don't do it. But on the 15th day, as they've moved back to Judah and Jerusalem, they kept the Feast of Booths. It's an eight-day feast. They're, they're not in their homes yet. They're living in tents. And then they build these little booths so that they can worship God aright. And I gotta tell you, this one, just on a personal level, is the one that blows my mind because I hate camping. They're, they're doing this so that God will be worshiped as their redeemer and deliverer. I'm not sure I would have stopped the building of my house because I hate camping. I, I don't really hate camping, right? I'm not the avid indoorsman my friend Austin Skaggs is. I love the outdoors, 
But when the day is done, I would like a tent with indoor plumbing and an air conditioner and a heater. Now, some people will say that's an RV. I don't want to roll away while I'm sleeping either. We get tents at my house. They're called VRBOs, right? My, my friend Clint Barnett, he's an orthopedic surgeon at Scott and White, deacon at TBC. We're at the Barnett's house visiting one night and they had just gone camping. Doesn't that look fun? They've got nets over their head because there's so many gnats there. I so desperately want to be going to sleep and gnats to fly into the holes on my face. No. So Clint's showing us pictures and my, my son Jeb, who's 11 now, was maybe eight or nine then, says, oh dad, I wanna go camping. And I just immediately thought, I hate you, Clint Barnett. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't Sunday, so I thought I could tell a little white lie. And I said, Jeb, the Barnetts go camping because Dr. Barnett is an orthopedic surgeon and they can't afford a cabin on his salary. <laughs> and Dr. Barnett said, Jeb, isn't that amazing? And your dad makes all that money just working one day a week. <laughs> See, they're, they're living in tents and their gaze is set on God so clearly that they stop building their houses and they go and worship for eight days, which is to say lots of sacrifices. On a normal seventh month, over 200 animals are gonna be sacrificed at the temple. See, it's bloody. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so 15 days into returning, they just stop what they're doing and set their gaze on God. And I think it's good to stop and consider that because I, th I think it's true. Poet Mary Oliver says, attention is the beginning of devotion. And God has their attention. See, there had been a day when he didn't have it and he got it. And they went into exile for 70 years and now God has their attention. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Does God have your attention? Doesn't stop with attention, it goes on to affection, but it starts with attention. Does God have your attention? Does your spouse have your attention? Do your kids have your attention? Does something that shouldn't, or someone that shouldn't have your attention, have your attention? We live in a distracted world. I gotta tell you, I love this phone and I've found my favorite button on this phone. It's the do not disturb button. I'm so easily distracted. I hit that button and I'm a little less distracted. When the phone stops distracting me, there's only a thousand other things, right? God has their attention. And so they keep the Feast of Booths. Israelites still do this today and they do it at harvest time. They do it at harvest time and there are four things that I think that they're reminding themselves about God as they keep this feast. Number one is that God is their provider. They're blessed with a harvest. God is the one who takes care of them. Number two, God's their deliverer. They're remembering his redemption, his deliverance when they were living in tents in the wilderness and God was caring for them during their exodus from Egypt. He didn't leave them now. He hasn't left them then. They do it as it is written. God is their source of truth. And in the Feast of Booths, over and over, morning and evening, they're just directed back to the altar, directed back to worship. They're reminded 
that God is their guide for life and worship is the priority. See, they're remembering the story they're part of and remembering the story you're part of is essential for continued faithfulness. But nostalgia can be dangerous. It can be like a double-edged sword. What are they remembering? They're remembering that nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to and accomplishing his purposes through his people. So then the foundation is laid. See, people gave them money in Babylon to make the journey. Now they're giving money to the Masons and the carpenters and they're giving food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, these people that bring these trees down. And when the foundation is laid, it's just such a significant moment. It's about seven months after they've got there and it says that these leaders appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And this is a moment just to pause and and realize the law when God gave it was about worship. Certainly there are rules, but the ultimate goal is worship. See, Levites, they started, it started that Levites were 50 years old and older. And then there came a time in the life of Israel where they needed more men. And so then it became 25 to 50. Well, now post-exile, there are a lot of people gone. Levites are 20 and older, worships the priority, will do whatever it takes to get worship to God. So the Levites supervised the work of the Lord and they laid the foundation. Now, can you imagine for 70 years they've been in exile? Nothing was quite right. We talk about this in in my house. It's like if you're at a concert and there's just a buzz in the background the whole time. You might enjoy the music, but nothing is just quite right. Well, they've had more than a buzz in the background. Everything has seemed broken. They've been out of their place without their temple, without their sacrifices, without their feasts, without the rhythms of life that they're used to as worshipers of God. And so laying this foundation is this beautiful moment and it's a beautiful moment that leads to praise verse 10 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple the priest and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites the sons of asaph with symbols to praise the lord according to the directions of david and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the lord why because ultimately being in God's presence is going to lead to praise. It may start with woe is me. It may start with repentance then it leads to adoration. Ultimately, it's going to lead to praise. And it's gonna lead to praise because praise has to overflow. So verse 11 says, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is the same thing they sang when they laid the foundation of the first temple. And if you stop and think about it for just a moment, they're singing David's songs. This is what the Israelites sang in Psalm 136. Give thanks to God for he is good. His love endures forever. They would recount something he did. They'd sing responsively, give thanks to God for he is good. His love endures forever over and over and over because being in God's presence leads to praise. It has to. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. 
I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed at all that enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. They can't help but say it out loud. They begin to praise God for he's good. And the praise is loud. Listen, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's this great shout. There are thousands of people, but not everybody is happy. Verse 12, many of the priests and Levites, heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house. These are people who were young, uh, they children maybe, teenagers, or maybe young adults, when the exile happened, they had seen the first house. It was glorious, it was beautiful. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. If you could get the scene, you could probably hear it from a long way away. But people are confused by it. See, it says that people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping in verse 13. They shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. It might have been like last night. If you're watching this football game between San Francisco and Green Bay and a field goal wins it at the end, and if you're Whitley Casey and those Green Bay Packer fans, you are just crying. But all those 49er fans, they're shouting for joy. And you might wonder what is going on. Well, why... Why are these old guys crying? I think they're crying because they remembered how it had been and they thought things could never be the same. See, generations do this to one another. We talked last week about how sometimes we fail to honor those who've gone before us. Well, now those who had gone before them are failing to trust that God can work in and through this new generation. See, there's so much wisdom to be learned from previous generations, but I don't think it's the wisdom of we know how to do things and you don't. See, I think it's the wisdom of it's, it's that we know the faithfulness of God in spite of our own mistakes. We know how God's faithful in good days and hard days, and he will be faithful as he has been faithful. Can you imagine this picture? These people are weeping because they remember the former house and they think things will never be the same but the same as what had gotten them into exile 70 years ago, right? But God had been faithful in spite, in spite of their sin and foolishness. Worship here will never be like it was in Solomon's temple. There, there's this sense of hopelessness. See, remembering the story that you're part of is essential for continued faithfulness, but nostalgia, if you're not careful, it can... It can leave some thinking that things are hopeless, but they're not hopeless. Now, we need to turn to another Old Testament book that was written about the same time, Haggai chapter two. It's right toward the end of the New Testament. It's really easy to find. That's why I got my place marked. Haggai chapter two, he's prophesying 17 years into this build, this first wave, it's about a 20 year build, so they're 17 years in. Some of these people are weeping still. He's prophesying in this four-month period, about 520 B.C., 
It says in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Joshua and Joshua are the same name in Hebrew. The high priest, all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So he's, he's pressing on them, those that saw this house, and they wept because of the former glory. How do you see it now? How do you see this new house? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Y'all are looking at this build and you're not, he says. Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Rise and build, be strong and work. God is with you. He says, Haggai 2.4, work for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that all the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then listen to this, Haggai 2.9, the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, God's going to come down through Jesus Christ. God will inhabit the temple again in flesh through his son and through that he will bring peace peace to this place. They're going to have to wait a long time, but he's with them. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. Why? Because nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to and accomplishing his purposes through his people. That was true then and it's true now. So what do we do? With this. So I think there are four truths for them that apply to us, and then four truths that are just for us from this text. Number one, their physical return has to mean a spiritual return if they're to accomplish what God has for them. It's got to mean a spiritual return, not just a physical return. So worship is their priority, and they start sacrificing, and it's bloody. What it meant for them is the blood of lots of bulls and goats, but we know the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. What it means for us is that by the mercy of God, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. We're crucified with Christ. We die to ourselves and live to God. We get on mission with our victorious king and we follow him. We follow him. If we go through the motions of Christianity without having our entire beings engaged, without having our attention on Jesus, our affection for Jesus, we might just run in vain. Be careful. Number two, worship is the priority. It's a priority. Number three, these people are part of a long, real historical story with a phenomenal ending. God has guided their paths and he's restored their fortunes. And we, if you're in Christ, we are part 
of this long and beautiful historical story with a phenomenal ending, which is really an eternal beginning. And number four, they just couldn't help but praise, and so must we. Now, four truths for us, and then we are done. Number one, we have to constantly remember we need God and we need to worship. We need God's presence and we need to worship. We understand that we need God and when we do, then the gospel comes in. The good news that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead on our behalf. See, if anyone who has the Son has life, John tells us. Anyone who does not have the Son does not have life. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life. If you're not in Christ, you do not and you need eternal life. We need God. We need to worship. The gospel comes in. When the gospel, the good news is preached and we believe the Holy Spirit comes inside, lives inside us, stirs our hearts for this vocation of making much of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and all over the earth. This leads us to be a surrendered and unified people who are on mission together. What's the mission? We're making disciples through various means. Maybe we're serving on Sunday morning in children's ministry, making disciples, commending God to the next generation. Maybe we're doing it in our home. Maybe we're doing it in our workplace, leading men and women to know Christ better through studying the word together and being on mission together. Then as we make disciples through these various means, God is glorified. His saving power goes out. More people understand that they need God and they receive the gospel. Number one, we have to remember we need God and we need to be worshipers of God. Number two, we've got to trust God's goodness in hard times as we do in easy times. God does not, has not, and will not go back on his promises. Number three, our eyes have to be open so that we can see God at work around us because he is at work around us. And that's gotta lead us to praise. The last thing is that we've gotta stop underestimating what God can still do in and through his people. And we often underestimate what God can still do in and through his people. Why? because nothing will stop God from keeping his promises and accomplishing his purposes. He keeps his promises to his people. He accomplishes his purposes through his people. How would God accomplish his purposes through you, through us this week? God, would you help us to know? Would you help us to see? Would you help us to trust? God, would we be people who with our mouths and with our lives, with our attention and affection, are just fully devoted to you, this God who keeps his promises. And Lord, by your grace, could we see your purposes accomplished in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, among the nations, God. Be magnified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.